0: Good morning, everyone. (laughs) Today we're taking a break from our normal series in Romans that uh, Cliff is so beautifully walking us through. Uh, And I'd like uh, you all to go ahead and turn, uh, if you would, to 2 Peter chapter 1 for this morning's text. So, and as you turn there, uh, this week I I finished my sermon actually pretty early in the week uh, because I was having Cliff look it over. And uh, he gave me some pointers to improve it and to to go through it. Um, And it was... Shortly after our meeting that day when we found out about uh, the tragedy in Florida, uh, uh, it was that same day, I'm sure like all of you, my heart was broken for these families. My heart grieved for their loss. But still in my mind, there was a recurring thought of how can one person commit such evil. The answer to this question has been debated all week long, and I'm sure is even continuing as we're here worshiping God this morning. And for all the broad range of emotions that people are feeling this week, it dawned on me that at the center of these tragic events, it appears it's an identity issue to which many questions arise, such as who are we? Why are we here? What is our purpose? Why do bad things happen to innocent people? And one that, one that many parents are asking this week Is where do we go when we die? Each and every one of these questions rests at the heart of a search for identity. So if you would, please pray with me. Dear Lord, I want to lift up the friends and families, the co workers, the teachers, the first responders, the community, and the loved ones of those that are affected by this tragic event. Lord, I pray that you will be there in the midst of the why questions that are going <laughs> going on in homes across America. I pray that your truth will shine. And I pray for the young man that carried out these murders. That you will bring conviction to his heart and justice to the families. I also pray for our local, state, and federal leaders, Lord. Please give them the wisdom to sift through the information regarding this event and others like it. To determine what is best for the health health and welfare of those in this country. Lord, I thank you that you are a sovereign God of justice and of mercy. And there is nothing that happens outside of you. It is my prayer today that it will be your words that are heard today, Lord. And I, just, and I am just the messenger of our great and mighty King. Please soften all of our hearts today. And in your Son's name, amen. So a big reason why Identity came to mind this week is because it was already a large part of my sermon before this event even happened. It's interesting that Peter, the author of our book today, was often struggling with identity. On one occasion in Matthew, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? To which Peter responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter declares the truth of who Jesus is. He declares Jesus' divinity. And this was not an insignificant title. But unfortunately for Peter, it was only six verses later. As Jesus is predicting his death, that Peter rebukes Jesus, telling him, no, this cannot happen to you. And Jesus' response must have been startling to the man. Jesus calls him Satan. My mind sees Peter in all his pride with his draw on the floor and about to mumble like a child. But I just, said, I just said you were God. Unfortunately for Peter, this is not the end of his struggles. The night before Jesus is crucified, he goes from a brash, prideful statement that he will never deny Christ to being devastated. After he does three times in the same courtyard where Jesus is being abused. Thankfully, the story does not stop there. After Jesus' resurrection, he restores Peter by asking him if he loves him three times, just like he had denied him three times. And in Peter's affirmation, Christ responds first by telling him to feed his sheep. And then with a sobering foretelling in John 21, 18-19, he says, "Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish." This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, "Follow me." As John mentions. It is here that Jesus foretells of Peter's death. And as Christ says that Peter's hands would be stretched out, church tradition holds, that in the midst of the persecutions by Emperor Nero, somewhere between 64 and 67 AD, Peter was crucified upside down on a cross. Because he saw himself as being unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. However, just prior to his death, Peter writes our text today. Even as he is writing 2 Peter, his death was imminent, and he makes reference to it in verses 1, 12 to 15. He says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in truth that you ha- in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that putting off my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. It is clear here that Peter is drawing back in his memory to a remembrance of that day, sitting there eating fish on the beach with his Lord. He is not only reflecting on the foretelling of this manner in which he was to die, but he is also remembering the task that Christ had laid before him, He was to feed Christ's sheep, and from the tone of the letter, he believes that he was successful in teaching the foundational truths to these brothers and sisters in the faith. But he wants to reiterate them one last time before he goes on to glory. With that, please read with me, Second Peter, chapter one. We'll be reading one through three, and again 12 through 15. Today we will be laying a foundation for the rest of 2 Peter. For now, I have one sermon to preach, but it is my intention to continue as a series in 2 Peter over the next months and years as Cliff allows me uh, to preach. So we'll be focusing on verse 1, but since it's a laying of a foundation for the rest of the book, it's important to look over other verses in 2 Peter. But let's look at verse 12 and 15 to establish Peter's heart of the letter. He says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. And then in 15, he says, I want you to be able to recall these things at any time. If you recall, these verses bookend Peter's mention of his imminent death in 13 and 14. So for Peter, this is a letter of of remembrance, a reminder of the foundational truths of the faith. In verse 15, it is his desire that they are able to recall these truths at any time. And unlike his first letter that was broader in scope to an audience that needed the elementary training in the faith, this letter appears to have more of an intimate tone. He is directing it to an audience of peers with a like-minded faith. And so he starts his reminder letter with a typical greeting by identifying himself as a servant of God which is significant, and we will deal with the first half of that verse at the end of the sermon. But it's the second half of the verse that he draws their remembrance to the truths of their identity in Christ. He begins with a single sentence that encompasses deep theological concepts. And I trust that as Peter was reminding his audience of old truths, that I will be bringing remembrance to most of you as well. So in verse 1 he says, To those who have obtained a faith, of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The main concept of this this verse is that all believers having a faith of equal standing. This is significant because as he writes to these fellow believers, he is not seeing them as less than himself. As if writing to them, reminding them of the truths of faith, somehow makes him greater. His humiliation in front of Christ has brought him great humility. But this is not a new concept in the rest of Scripture. Paul also fleshes this concept out in several of his letters. In Romans one eight to twelve, he says, "First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, who I serve with, who I serve with my spirit." in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests, if by some means, now at least I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to some spiritual, impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith of both you and me. As he, is, as he expresses his desire to see them, his motive is not solely to teach them something, but that he may gain some encouragement from them as well. And we see that in 11 and 12 when he mentions the mutual faith of both of them, 12. How many of you have had that friend that you dread the phone call or the visit? Because when they come over, the oxygen decides to leave the room. By the end of the visit, you are exhausted and you know every problem of their family members and yet they know nothing of your life. They simply word vomited all over you. Now contrast that with the longtime childhood friend that lives across the country. Mine is in Phoenix, Arizona and my buddy Mike. It's like when we get together that no time has passed at all. The peace that comes from their present produces great joy. And now picture having a mutual relationship in Christ that is like the relationship with your best friend. This is how Peter and Paul viewed the faith of their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Even as they are writing to correct, admonish, encourage, teach, teach, and even rebuke their fellow believers, they do so first understanding that there is an equal standing with Christ. But how does this faith work out? What are the essentials of this faith that Peter mentions? And while not directly in the verse, (laughs) the first point is the foundation of faith that Peter builds on in verse 3. Peter begins... With his divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, this is not the first time that God has endowed man with his power. In fact, God first did this in Genesis, and part of that power is carried in the theological concept of the Imago Dei. It's a foundational concept because it because it is greatly lacking. In the world today, and it deeply affects how we engage others. With all the turmoil across the world that is often linked to identity issues of one form or another, the concept of the Imago Dei is deeply lacking. The Imago Dei is a Latin phrase that, in its simplest definition, means being created in the image of God. However, the overall concept is much greater than the simple definition. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Throughout the entirety of the creation narrative, mankind is the only creature that God places his image upon them. As seen in verse 28, God institutes the dominion mandate that places mankind above every living creature. Thus God establishes that mankind has inherent worth over every other living creature simply because they bear his image. Thus God establishes... sorry, sorry This inherent worth is, is demonstrated within the understanding that we all have an eternal soul and that we have a conscience that is able to do, differentiate right from wrong. Matt Chandler of the Village Church in Texas in a sermon series entitled A Beautiful Design, asks the question, if my family of five with our dog and our horse fall on financial difficulties, who is the first one to go? (laughs) His obvious answer is the dog and the horse because their worth is inferior to the rest of the family. Although he notes, even though his wife Lauren, excuse me, is by far the most expensive in the family. There is still no assumption of her being the first to go, and we typically know this instinctively. And he goes on to vi- define the Imago Day this way: he says the Imago Day is God's investment in humanity of godlike glory and moral capacity to reign and rule the earth as his representatives. I'll read that again. The Imago Dei is God's investment in humanity of Godlike glory and moral capacity to reign and rule the earth as His representatives. <sighs> Unfortunately, there are other circumstances in life that this concept is not so clear. I was first made aware of this. my first year of ministry. I started out my church at the high desert in August and from late January to early March. There were three suicides involving kids in the local high school. None of my students were... (laughs) Sorry, none of my students were from the church. Unfortunately, there were a few of my students that were institutionalized because they believed they had inadvertently entered a suicide pact with one of the students. In addition, my students attending attended the school with these students and it deeply affected them. As I assessed the situation, I discovered that the students that took their lives were from faiths that did not have this concept of the Imago Dei. And as I talked to my students, I discovered they had never heard of the concept. Not the word or the concept. And it was truly sobering to see the effects of, of a biblical foundation not being taught in schools. Thus, my greatest emphasis to my students that I'll emphasize here is if someone is created in the image of God, it changes everything, especially if it is a part of, who we, of what we believe. The Imago Dei requires that if a person is different from you, for whatever reason, they must be treated with dignity and respect. Thus, we must bring compassion, care, and truth in a way that is loving. Or as we can see in Ephesians 4, 25-32, and I'll highlight a few points here. One point says, Let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. There are glimpses of the Ten Commandments throughout this passage as we look through it. As we look through Ephesians 4, 25-32, we can see how this applies to how we engage everybody. So treating people with this kind of respect and dignity assumes the source of identity, which is the only true identity, an identity as an image bearer of God. James Brandt, a pastor out of Michigan, summarizes this concept well. He says, the truth is that we are created to be loved, accepted, and appreciated. Rejection is an anti-Christ spirit because it opposes the very nature that God created in us. Rejection starves a person from love and acceptance that they were designed to receive. The problem is that when we turn to others or even ourselves for that love and acceptance, we are setting ourselves up for failure and the damage of of rejection. Only God can be trusted as the source of our identity. Now the identity that comes to the Imago Dei applies to every person in the world. But for the Christian, there is a twofold identity that is true of them as well. In addition to the Imago Dei, the Christian carries an identity with Christ that brings an inheritance as sons and daughters of God when they come to faith in Him. And this identity is deeply rooted in the concepts of justification and adoption. And Peter alludes to each of these in verse 1. And the first is that all believers are justified by Christ, as we see in 1 Peter 1. When Peter says that our faith is, is by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is speaking to justification. Whenever we see the concept of being justified in the Bible, it is drawing on a legal concept that is to make one righteous. Paul addresses this in Romans 5, 17 to 21. He says, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace And the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. In order for this justification to take place, there is an essential qualifier that is connected uh, to it in Christianity. That qualifier is forgiveness. But forgiveness alone is not enough. Being forgiven of our sin just makes us neutral. It does not make us righteous. For that to happen, two things were required. And there must uh, be, one, there must be punishment for sin. And two, righteousness must be kept. This is only accomplished in Christ. In order for righteousness to be declared through uh, through the courts, the penalty must be paid. If we go to the Old Testament law, just one example here uh, regarding theft. In Exodus 22.1, it says if a man steals an ox or kills it and sells it, sorry, and kills it and sells it, he must repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. In order for the guilty party to be made whole or righteous in the eyes of the community, there is a fourfold and fivefold repayment of the animals that were stolen. Thus, the punishment for the crime is substantially worse for the offending party than if he had never committed the act at all. If that is the case regarding theft, how can the sinner have any hope to be made right with God when he demands our perfection? If a single offending sin removes that perfection, and a greater payment is required to make the person whole again, is it not impossible for the sinner to ever be made right with God? The scriptures are clear that the answer is no. And that is why Christ took on the punishment for our sins. And then his perfect life was then imputed to us as if we lived his life in the eyes of God. Therefore, it is is in the light of this that Peter writes of us having equal faith because he recognizes that his faith was equally reliant on Christ as their own. And closely related to justification is the concept of adoption that brings the sinner into the family of God. <laughs> and this can be seen uh, in, here in 1 Peter as we look at our God and that we're, it's something that we are having obtained. Okay? And Paul also explains this well in Ephesians uh, 1 three and 5, through 5. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. <laughs> in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And he continues in three eleven through 12, in him we have imta- obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise might be to the praise of his glory while justification made us righteous in the eyes of god adoption brings adoption brings us into the family of god when paul writes of adoption he is bringing to the table a somewhat different concept or some different concepts than we understand in adoption today in Rome, having a male heir was vital to the continuing on of your family name. And so, Since they did not have advancements in science to ensure that there was a biological heir, they would often find a suitable person to adopt. This was commonplace to obtain an heir, but, rigor, but a rigorous form in which had significant consequences. And some of these consequences included the adopted person's rights would be moved from the old family to the new. The adopted person was now the first heir to the estate and could not be written out. But the natural-born children still could, could be written out of inheritance. It was as if the previous life of the adopted child never existed and they were a new person. If You think of today, your credit report would have been wiped Any past accidents on your DMV record would be wiped out. They would have nothing of their old life still within the family. And four, to the court, the adopted person was now 100% a member of the new family. So with Paul writing in this context, these truths can also be applied to the Christian. And we see elements of these concepts throughout Paul's letters. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away; behold, the new has come. Ephesians three six. He goes on to say that this mystery is that, is that through the gospel the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers in the promise in Christ Jesus. It is with the It is with the doctrine. <coughs> excuse me. It is with it is with the doctrine. Doctrine of adoption that the Lord secures us and we can live in joy and rest knowing that we are his because he sought us out to be his children through faith in Jesus Christ. And just as the Roman fathers would seek out heirs for their family, most notably Emperor Claudius adopted one of the greatest persecutors of the church in Nero, so too God calls his people to him in adoption so that they will receive an inheritance as his children. Through rigor, the rigors of trials and persecution, Peter has now come to the true understanding of what it means to be equally a part of Christ's people because it is solely left to the work of Christ in the in the individual and nothing that they can accomplish on their own. <coughs> so what does that equality mean for us today? So if we go back to Peter's greeting it means that we are part of God's family and as part of his family we are as Peter servants and apostles of Christ now it's important to note that while the term apostle in rela- here is in relation to an office that was uh, limited <laughs> to certain qualifications in the early church historically historically these qualifications were uh, being a wit- that the, they had to be a witness to Christ's life and or post-resurrection appearances. They were personally chosen by Christ, a person who was a student of Christ and able to perform miracles. And based on these qualifications, the office no longer exists. But the general definition in Greek is to a, be a messenger of God. And we are still called to do that. The term that is used for servant here is the word doulos, which means to be a slave of or a bond servant. And Paul frequently refers to himself as a bond servant. And as Cliff has touched on this in recent sermons on being slaves to Christ, this was a time where slaves and indentured servants were as common as today's household vacuums. Peter begins the letter by introducing himself. In connection to the one he is in service to. And just as slaves would run errands and would hail whom they are in service to, because it is not they that are important, but their masters are. Peter is not declaring that he is the son of, as if he was more important than those he is writing to, but he is he declares that he is a servant to show that he is equal to them. So therefore we are all servants of Christ with equal standing. However, we may not all have equal roles, just as Paul says in Corinthians, that the body of Christ is made up of many members. But there are significant applications of this passage to all of us, regardless of the role that God has placed us in. And first, we are Christ's servants to deliver his message. If we go back to his ascension, When he gives what we know of as the Great Commission, he tells us to go out and make disciples. We are to teach them and train them and share his message. We are to deliver the message that he has in his gospel so that we can share the good news. That we can allow people to have faith in him. To have this great and glorious faith that brings us from sinners to sons and daughters of God. So this week as you go out, think about how you can deliver God's message as His servant. And two, Christ's servants respond to needs. Being a part of God's family requires us to acknowledge His truths. This means that we we need to treat each other and every person as God's image bearers. Therefore, must therefore we must treat them with dignity and respect, understanding the needs they may have as an individual without pretense. Often that comes with, uh, and often that comes with simply listening. I read a book uh, called *The Twelve Rules of Life* by a man named Jordan Peterson, and one of his rules that he has is: enter every con- conversation as if the other person has something important to say. And this is a key principle for us to engage with one another. And we also see this in James. James 1, 19 and 21, he says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. If you turn on any social media outlet, you can quickly become memed or gift out. So many people are more worried about posting unfortunate depictions of their opponents, what their opponent is like, rather than having a conversation with them. So let us walk in Christ and meet people where they are and get to know them individually For what they have to say and what they believe and what their needs are specifically. So, this week, how can you be Christ's servants to meet others' needs? And finally, we are Christ's servants to demonstrate the gospel. And this is probably the most difficult point to deal with because it often requires us to be the most vulnerable. All too often, the world will hail us as being hypocrites. They'll tell us that we're hypocrites. And I often, as I think about this, see that it is a misunderstanding of the gospel. It's a misunderstanding of what the gospel is about as if we are perfect. Because we're Christians, we are perfect. But the gospel is the good news knowing that we aren't perfect and we will not make that until the end, until we're with our Lord. And so, as we look to how we demonstrate the gospel, this can be done with both the world and with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. This means encouraging one another, building up one another, holding one another accountable in their sin, and demonstrating God's love, forgiveness, grace, and mercy. When the world sees that we are sinners that are in need of God's grace, they're able to better understand the gospel and how can you demonstrate God's gospel this week in your service? Let's go out and be his servants and live for him this week. Let's close in prayer. dear Father, we thank you so much for today. Lord, we thank you for your son's work upon the cross, Lord. For his life as well, Lord. That he took the punishment of our sin and that he lived a perfect life that we were able to be made righteous. Lord, that when we stand in front of you, it is Christ they see. And that as we go forward and we, we grow in him, Lord, and we, we go through with life with the struggles and the difficulties, we know that, that your son did as well. But we also know that we have an eternal soul that gets to live with him as well, Lord. And that having faith in your Son, having a faith that saves us, a faith that adopts us, Lord, that we can go out and live an amazing life knowing those truths. And Lord, my prayer is this week that we can go out and whoever it is that we engage, that we can use your principles to understand that every person out there, Lord, is created in your image. Lord, that that elevates them. Lord, that that means that we can't, we shouldn't think of harming, of yelling at somebody. Lord, we we should think first about what it means to be your representative, Lord, here on earth. And that every person here is, Lord, and they deserve an inherent value that deserves dignity and respect, Lord. I pray that we can take that and show that and demonstrate that to the world, Lord. But that through that, we can also demonstrate our where our fallenness meets your grace, Lord. We thank you so much, Lord. In your Son's precious name, we pray. Amen.